0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to do verses 1 through 18, which is the story of Saul's conversion. The context is this. In chapter 8, the previous chapter, Saul was standing at the execution site of Stephen, holding his clothes and approving of his execution. And then that execution of Stephen started off a great persecution against the church, and Saul was part of that persecution, dragging off people out of houses, arresting them. And while that's going on, Philip the Apostle went up to Samaria and uh, participated in a great revival up there, and the Samaritan Christians, all of whom we believe, were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so now we go to, and then Philip went, after that, he went down on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and Converted the Ethiopian eunuch, and now we start in Acts chapter nine, starting with verses one and two. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Still, he's mentioned in verse three of Acts chapter eight. He was ravaging the church, and he's still doing it while all this conversion and revivals going on in Samaria. Paul, meanwhile, is trying to persecute Christians. So we see in verse one, Saul was still breathing threats and murders still as still continuing from the time when he was mentioned of persecuting the church in verse 3 in Acts 8. He's still doing it. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, that's probably Caiaphas, and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now remember at the stoning of Stephen, Acts seven fifty eight. They, the Sanhedrin, threw him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so Luke introduces us to Saul a couple chapters previously. This Saul is Saul of Tarsus. When Paul is recounting his life, his testimony to the Jerusalem mob in Acts 22, verse 3, he says this, I am a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but Brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. Yeah, Paul was zealous, or Saul at the time, he was called, was zealous for God. He was going around persecuting Christians. That's how he showed, that's how he showed his zeal. Now, when, he says, when Luke says that Saul was breathing threats and murder, then the studied Study Bible says about this, we don't know that Paul actually murdered any Christian. Well, yes we do. He didn't actually pull the trigger. He judicially murdered Christians. We do know he participated in the judicial murder of Stephen, as I just read. And there seem to be similar cases of, of judicial murder. Mentioned, for example, in Acts 22, verse 4, before the Jerusalem mob, Paul says this, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail. And notice the women too. Paul did not give any consideration to the fair sex. It shows how cruel he was to rip innocent women out of their houses, away from their children, put them in jail, and passing passing sentence on them and, and participating in the judicial process that caused them to be put to death. Acts 26, verse 10, I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison, since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death... I cast my vote against them. So he was involved in the judicial trials that judicially executed people. And in my opinion, that's worse than just killing somebody because now you're doing your killing, your murder under the color of law. And that brings horrible disrepute upon the law. Well, this man was a real piece of work before he got saved. And his conversion shows the incredible greatness of God's grace. His conversion was really, really remarkable. I think it was Adam Clark said that his conversion is irrefragable proof of the truth of Christianity. How could somebody going around murdering Christians also go around and preach the gospel just like that? It's, well, it's because of the miracles we're going to see here in just a minute. Notice that Luke mentions the way, so that if Paul found any men and women who belonged to the way, that was the nickname that the church had back then. We don't use it today. He, he wanted to bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem so he could get them under the authority of the Sanhedrin. So that's why he was going to Damascus. Damascus, by the way, was about 150 miles from Jerusalem, right northwest of Israel proper. It was a huge city. It was on the trade routes from the east to the west. In the west, you have the Mediterranean Basin, Cyprus, Crete, Greece, Rome, Spain, Egypt, Carini. All, all these uh uh, places in the in the Mediterranean basis they would trade with the eastern countries for example the Mediterranean the Mesopotamian Valley present-day Iraq Babylon if you will and then Iran across, uh, west east of the Tigris River and I think also over on to India too and so there was huge amounts of trade going through there and they would all went through Damascus so Damascus was a big place an important place and by golly Paul's going to stop the Christians from getting started there now there's a question You know, it's often said that the Jews did not have the right for capital punishment, and I just finished telling you that Paul was going around, and they said that when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. How is that possible, since the the Jews did not have the authority for capital punishment? Well, that is an interesting question. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that the Jews, Caiaphas, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, they had authority over Jews in Judea and anywhere else, authority over Jews only, and they had the authority to try and either acquit or sentence somebody to death. And that's true, but we need to say also that that authority was subject to the final approval of the Roman government. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff written on this. I found an article by Roy A. Stewart, Judicial Procedure in New Testament Times, on the Internet that goes into a lot of detail about this. But basically, it's saying that the Romans had the ultimate authority. Now, the Jews might do something when the Romans weren't there, when they, the government was lax, or in the case of Stephen, there might be a, a near riot. That was really more like a lynch mob than an a, a official Sanhedrin proceeding, judicial proceeding to to execute Stephen. And they might have just done it in violation of the Roman law, the way they weren't supposed to. And there were reasons why. and And the Jews had to get the Romans to execute Jesus because... The Romans said, you deal with religious law, we don't deal with that, but we deal with political stuff, and the, Ro- and the Jews couldn't pin blasphemy on Jesus. They couldn't do it. So they had to resort to trying to get Jesus as being a rebel, a political malefactor, in which case they obviously had to get the support of the, of the Romans. Jesus was a lot more popular among the people than Stephen was. Stephen didn't have support, and so the Sanhedrin got away with killing him for religious reasons, not for political reasons. And the the Romans are more likely going to let something like that go. But at any rate, Paul did his best, whatever the authority he had to do it was, to get Jewish people who believed in Jesus either thrown in jail or killed. He's on his way to Damascus. That's about 150 miles from Jerusalem. It takes about four to six days to get there, according to the NIV study Bible. And it had a large Jewish population. And so that's why Paul was concerned about it. We go to verse 3. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, that's Paul, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Now, this is at noontime. We know this from Paul's recounting of the event to the Jerusalem mob in Acts 22, 6. As I was traveling and near Damascus, about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. And when he's four chapters later in Acts 26, when he's before Agrippa, this is when he was arrested at Caesarea While on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun about midday, shining around me and those traveling with me. So this light must have been extraordinarily bright to overcome the effects of the midday sun. Verse 4 in Acts 9, Falling to the ground, he, Paul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I keep calling him Paul. We have to remember it this time. He was not Paul yet. His name was changed later. Uh, uh, He's called Saul. Now Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? That's because Jesus is the head, Christians are the body, you persecute the body, you hurt the head. Just like if I sliced my leg, my brain would hurt, and likewise, you hurt Jesus' body, you hurt the head. And so he's saying, Saul, you're persecuting me. Notice he's saying, Saul, Saul, twice. Saul, Saul, what are you doing, man? Kind of like that. His repetition of his name showed how impassioned he was. The repetition of the name Saul calls to mind that when Paul was recounting the incident in Acts 22 and Acts 26, those two verses I just read, he used the name Saul. He doesn't change a thing, even after the lapse of so many years, which just goes to show when something remarkable happens to you, you remember it 50, 60, 70 years later, you never forget. The repetition of that name Saul by Jesus, John Gill says, is to show vehemence and affection. We go to verse, oh, first of all, before we go on, notice that this verse 4 says that Saul falling to the ground heard a voice. John Gill says he couldn't stand the bright light, so he hits the ground. He was confused. He was amazed, so he hits the ground. But then the next question is, well, he was on horseback, right, riding to, or donkey back. I don't know what they rode on, but he 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 was riding to Damascus, and all of a sudden he hits the ground. Well, Clark denies this, said he was walking, but I don't know why he'd be walking. So I don't have any problem with, if I was on a the back of a donkey and saw a bright light, bright light like that, I could just put my head down on the donkey's mane, slide off the side of the donkey and hit the ground. So that's not a problem. I, th- I suspect that's what happened, actually. Saul, by the way, going back to that name Saul, that's a Hebrew name, Saul. I think Paul is the Greek name. Paul's companions fell down, too, at this bright light. Acts 26:14. we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We go to verse 5 in Acts 9. Who are you, Lord? He, Paul, said, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting, he replied. Now, Paul calls him Lord. That does not be- mean he believed at this point. I don't believe he did believe at this point because he didn't know who was ta- he was talking to. Lord is a polite phrase. It can either mean you call Jesus Lord as in God Lord, but it also means a, p- a polite name like Mr. or Sir or Your Honor. You know, it's, a, it's an, affection- an a, not an, a, an honorary term. And so I don't think Paul is saved here. Now, we're going to see as we go through that the scholars disagree exactly on when Paul got saved. We'll talk about that as we go through, but he wasn't saved here. Who did Paul think he was looking at? Well, you see a bright light. The NIV Study Bible says Paul thought he was looking at God himself. In rabbinic tradition, a voice from heaven would be understood to be a voice from God himself, as John Gill points out. The NIV Study Bible says the bright light and solemn repetition of Saul's name were added proof to Saul. He's talking to God. John Gill says he could have thought he was talking to an angel. I don't think so. I think he's talking to God. But he did not know he was talking to Jesus. Remember, Paul had never seen Jesus in the flesh, never heard him speak in the flesh. And so he thinks he's probably talking to God. And Jesus then answers, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. What a shock that must have been. You hate Jesus with all your guts. And then all of a sudden, he's standing there talking to you. Why are you persecuting me, Paul? Notice that, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, Jesus knew Saul before Saul knew Jesus. He chose us before we chose him. Now, if this is not we, later on, uh, it's going to the, the passage. The scripture is going to mention Paul as a chosen instrument of the Lord to go to the Gentiles, a chosen instrument. This just shows that when God wants to save somebody, He's the one that initiates. I know that gets into all the Calvinist-Arminian debate, but I mean, my gosh, here you have somebody who was absolutely intent on. Hating Jesus and killing Christians, and all of a sudden Jesus reaches down and saves him. Well, exactly where was the initiative there? F- Paul's free will? I don't think so. Of course, Paul gladly submitted to the initial moving of Jesus in his life. He submitted to that. He did Jesus, Paul's free will was never violated. But the initial effort to get Jesus saved was from Jesus, God's side, Jesus's side, not Paul's side. Now in the King James here, there's another phrase added. Jesus tells Jesus tells Paul, "It is hard for you to kick against the pricks." That's old-fashioned English. A prick is a goad, and you and you would walk oxen and keep them on the road by sticking them with a stick so they wouldn't get off the road. And then the oxen would get mad at that and give a little side kick against the prick, against the goad. And so, what God is te- Jesus is telling Paul here, Saul here, is you're kicking against me, Saul. Stop don't do that anymore. Now, it's not in the, it, there's a, I've got a good quote from Adam Clark saying why it's not in the manu, early manuscripts. The King James puts it in on dubious manuscript authority, but it doesn't matter because it is in, with good manuscript authority in Acts 22 when Paul is recounting his conversion to the Jerusalem mob. And so, and that's probably why it got written in here in the whatever manuscripts the King James used to get That kicking against the pricks came from Acts 22. They put it here in Acts 9. doesn't matter. The idea is there. And at least one part is that Saul is kicking. He was not searching. He was not using his free will to come following the Lord. He was kicking against the goads, against the pricks. And notice Jesus says, I am Jesus. He doesn't say, Jesus the Nazarene, that term of opprobrium the Jews like to use all the time. He called him Jesus. All right, so we go to verse 6. Jesus continues talking to Saul. He says, get up, but get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Of course, the city is Damascus. Paul was almost there. Now, Paul obeyed and went into the city. And so Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that that indicates that Paul was a believer at this point. And I think they're probably right, although I'm not sure. But as we go on, we'll see that Paul was a believer by the time he meets Ananias. We go to verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Now there's a reconciliation problem. Acts 22 verse 9 says this. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. They did not hear the voice in Acts 22, but in Acts 9, they heard the sound. So how do you reconcile that? Well, the easiest way is in Acts 22 9. When it says they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to Paul, it means they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me, speaking to Paul. They did did not hear and understand. In fact, NIV translates it, they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me, but they did hear the sound, the sound, but not without understanding. They saw saw the bright light, but they didn't see Jesus in the bright light. It says they stood speechless. There's another problem with that because... uh, in Acts 26:14, 14, as Paul is talking, he says, we all fell to the ground. But in Acts 9, it says, they stood speechless. Oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible. The liberals would like to say, no, here's the way you reconcile that. They first stood speechless. They saw the light. They were shocked. They stood there, staring at the light, and then they said, oh, my gosh, and boom, then they hit the ground. There's no contradiction at all. It's just reporting the incident at a slightly different point in time. And again, these little detail differences show that these accounts of gospel events were not done in cahoots with one another. The authors didn't get together and try to reconcile the story so everybody believed them. They just, they told it like they saw it. And these people who are constantly talking about their errors in the Bible, all they show, they don't show any intelligence. They show their animus toward Jesus is what they're really doing. Their animus towards God. Now... This verse in Acts 9-7 says that the men with Paul saw no one. This is like when Daniel had a vision. Daniel 10-7, Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them, and they ran and hid. So you can see these visions are kind of personal, although the effects of the vision were a little bit objective. People around saw it. So we go down to Acts 9-8, Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was blinded by that bright light. Now, why would God do something like that? Why would God blind Paul? That doesn't surprise me at all. God wanted Paul to be weak. Paul was a very strong person. He was strong in his education, and his judicial power. He had a contingent, a posse, going out to arrest Christians. And and God is going to teach Paul, "Uh uh-uh, not by your might. Are you going to do anything? You're going to do it with my strength. And you need to get broken in your flesh. This is a perfect application because every Christian has got to go through this. Every Christian thinks that he's God's gift to the world. and He's going to bring about the gospel on earth by his own unaided efforts, efforts. Uh-uh. No, you're not. you got to be broken. And Paul was broken. And what better way to make somebody broken than to make him blind? Because when you're blind, you're helpless. You you can hardly walk. Paul was an arrogant, persecuting murderer before that bright light came. And afterwards, he was a blind, stumbling a stumbling blind man acts nine nine. he was unable to see for 3 days and did not eat or drink uh, john gill says he was filled with grief sorrow remorse and repentance now i that john gill obviously believes that paul is saved during this 3 day fast and i think he is i mean you go for 3 days without eating or drinking and after having a vision from jesus and you're going to tell me he's not saved i don't think so he was saved and so John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that Paul, during these three days, was receiving truth from the Lord. Let me read you a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. The double conviction must have immediately flashed upon him that his whole teaching of the Old Testament hitherto had been wrong, and that the system of legal righteousness in which he had, up to that moment, rested and prided himself was false and fatal. What materials these for spiritual exercise during those three days of total darkness, fasting and solitude? on the one hand what self-condemnation what anguish what death of legal hope what difficulty in believing that in such a case there could be hope at all on the other hand what heartbreaking admiration of the grace that had pulled him out of the fire what resistless conviction that there must be a purpose of love in it, and what tender expectation of being yet honored, as a chosen vessel to declare what the Lord had done for his soul, and to spread abroad the savour of that the savor, excuse me, the savour of that name which he had so wickedly, though ignorantly, sought to destroy, must have struggled in his breast during those memorable days. He was saved, folks. But Adam Clark said no he wasn't saved. He was in anxiety and anguish. Clark says he wasn't saved until Ananias got there. I think Clark is off base on that one. I believe he was saved during this fast. Remember, it was three days, according to the Hebrew way of computation, day one is the remainder of the day that he was blinded from midday. Day two was the entire day after the vision, and day three is the part of the day that Ananias came. So that's how long Paul was blind and didn't eat or drink. Acts 9, verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, Here I am, Lord," he Ananias said. Now here we have Jesus working out a double vision in order to get Paul set set forth on his ministry and his recovery. He gave Paul a vision which we don't have an account of, but we do have an account of the vision that Ananias had. Ananias is somewhere in Damascus; we don't know where. Paul is on the Straight Street, the street called Straight, at a house of a brother—excuse me—of a person named Judas. So. Here is Ananias' vision in verse 10. Now, Ananias is a Greek name that comes from the Hebrew Hananiah, and the word means the Lord is gracious. What a perfect name for somebody to come to Paul and say the Lord is gracious because, by golly, Paul, you don't deserve to be saved for what you've done. It is merely because of my grace. Now, the only other time that Ananias is mentioned is in Acts 22.12. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good reputation with all the Jews residing there. So he was a Jewish believer. This is, again, when Paul is telling of his conversion to the Jerusalem mob, he mentions Ananias, mentions he was devout, and he followed the law. He was a good Jew. Of course, he said that to the Jewish mob to try to say, hey, there's nothing in Christianity that's opposed to Judaism, so you guys need to get off of it. Now, obviously, Ananias was saved when he got this division because it says there was a disciple in Damascus called Ananias, so Ananias was saved. When he saw the Lord in a vision, Ananias says, Here I am, Lord. Ananias' attitude was like Samuel's attitude when he got called. John Gill points out, if you look at 1 Samuel 3, verses 4 through 16, we see the Lord calling Samuel three times. Samuel thought it was Eli, but he got up three times and said, Here I am like a young boy, trusting, innocent, ready to serve. And that's kind of what Ananias was doing. Here I am. Tell me what I got to do. Notice this isn't a vision. A vision is when you're awake. You receive a sight of the Lord while you're awake, not in a dream when you're asleep. Clark says, however, it was a dream. No, I don't think so. It says vision. Why did Ananias get this vision? Well, he needed direction. Of course, if he didn't have the vision, he wouldn't have gone to see Paul. He also needed an because, as we'll see later on, Paul, Ananias was scared of Paul for good reason. Paul's throwing Christians in jail. Acts 9, verse 11. Jesus continues in the vision to talk to Ananias. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. So on the Straight Street, which is, by the way, I've seen a map of Damascus, an ancient map. Archaeologically, they've still found it. I don't know what it looks like now. Shoot, who knows whether ISIS has destroyed it by now. I don't know, or the the Syrian Civil War, but I think it's been found, is what I'm saying. It's a long street running east to west through Damascus, which, by the way, is the oldest city in the world, the oldest continuously existing city in the world. Still there today. Go to the house house of a man named Judas. We don't know who Judas is. Uh, nobody knows who he is, but his name shows he was Jewish. Well, we don't know whether he was a believing or unbelieving Jew, but I think he was unbelieving. Why? Because Paul had been on the way to Jerusalem to persecute Christians. He probably had already previously arranged to stay with a fellow Jewish non-believer who's interested in persecuting Christians, so he that guy was probably Judas, and that so he, when he got blinded, he just probably went to the house where he'd planned to go to before, because he didn't didn't know any Christians, and so John Gill says Judas is probably not a believer. Paul actually probably customarily stayed there when he was in Damascus because he, he was known as a native of Tarsus, as Adam Clark points out, because Ananias is supposed to identify himself is supposed to ask for a man named Tarsus, which assumes that the people he's asking will know that, hey, Saul's from Tarsus, a man from Tarsus named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And so that means he would be well known, so that means he'd probably staying in the same house. So Paul is, we can assume, is staying at the house of Jewish persecutors, and then comes the Christian Ananias to get him ready for his ministry, not to persecute the church, but to prosper the church. Now, Jesus Tells Ananias in the vision that Paul is praying there, and the house called straight. Why was Paul praying again? If he's praying, who's he praying to? He's praying to Jesus. He's saved, so he's praying there. And what is he? He's probably praying. What am I supposed to do now, Lord? You blinded me. I can't see. What am I supposed to do now? Acts nine twelve. Jesus continues talking to Ananias in in Ananias' vision. In a vision, this is Paul's vision, he, Paul, has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. So you see, Paul has specific instructions in his vision. So there's not going to be any doubt. When a man comes up that you've never seen before and says, my name is Ananias, that's going to jive with what Paul had been been, um, told about in advance in the vision. And so Paul's going to know, yes, this guy's from God. Incredible spiritual experience here. Paul would know from that that his mind was not zooming because he hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days. (laughs) He's going to say, "Well, maybe I, maybe I'm hallucinating here." No, man named Ananias is going to come. You're going to know exactly who he is, what he is. He's going to tell you what to do. Don't worry about it. Acts nine thirteen. Lord, Ananias answered, "I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Remember, he was ravaging the church, pulling out." men and women from the houses and throwing them in jail and the word had gotten up to Damascus all the Christians knew that he was the antichrist buddy Paul was a big bad dude and we don't want to mess with him and now God you're telling me Jesus you're telling me I'm supposed to go I'm supposed to go pray for him that he gets his sight back I'm supposed to work a miracle on this man who's persecuting the church now Ananias is obviously afraid now, is that fear excusable or inexcusable? Gill said that the fear was sort of inexcusable. He was receiving a direct vision from the Lord, and he's scared. Clark, Clark said that, that Ananias' attitude was intolerable. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is somewhat more charitable to Ananias. Quote, the objections of Ananias and the removal of them by the Lord display in a very touching manner the childlike relation of the believing soul to its Redeemer. The Savior speaks with Ananias as a man does with his friend. Jameson Fawcett is quoting Olshausen, an old commentator, saying that. And I think Olshausen and Jameson Fawcett Brown are entirely correct. I don't blame Ananias for being scared. I mean, nothing wrong with talking to the Lord when he asks you to do something hard. You say, wait a minute, Lord, are you sure you want me to do that? <laughs> Can you imagine? Hosea... God, you want me to marry a prostitute? Are you sure? I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, how about Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, Jesus, I want you to be, the father says to Jesus, son, I want you to get nailed up on a cross, which is uh, somewhat a painful experience. And Jesus said, do you think you could take this cup away from me, father? There's nothing wrong with asking the Lord when they ask you to do something difficult, and he will. It's just inevitable. In life, there are hard things that you have to do, and you have to ask the Lord, God, I don't know if I want to do this. Nothing wrong. So I think Clark and Gill must have got up grumpy the morning they wrote that in their commentary. Now, how did Ananias know about the persecution done to the saints in Jerusalem? He tells the Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, Paul, Saul. I have heard from many people. These were Christians who had fled from Jerusalem during the post Stephen persecution, the persecution that started after Acts seven after Stephen was killed. Acts nine fourteen. This is Ananias still complaining to Jesus about his task, and he, Paul, has authority here in Damascus from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And you want me to go pray for him that to receive his sight? I could get arrested, Lord. Word of Paul's mission had gotten out among the Christians. They heard he was in town. He Apparently, Paul wasn't too secretive about what he was up there for. And I'm not surprised. He'd already dragged people out of their houses in Acts 3, ravaging the church. Acts 8, verse 3, he was ravaging the church. And we have all those many people that had come up to Damascus from there. So, it's not surprising the word had gotten out, and Ananias was scared of it. Acts nine fifteen. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites chosen, that's elected. I love using that word, especially around Armenians. It's everywhere in the Bible, folks. This man is my chosen instrument. Now, was Paul chosen because he was a lover of God and he was a kind man and he was a brave man? Was he chosen for that? No. Was he chosen for his good works? Well, his works consisted of killing, judicially murdering Christians and throwing them in jail. That was the qualifications he had to be god's chosen instrument to take god's name to gentiles jesus's names to gentiles kings and israelites that just shows that our salvation is not based on works but is by grace now paul of course is known as the apostle to the gentiles peter was the apostle to the jews i don't have the scripture and i think it's an Acts. well i won't say where it is because i can't remember but at some point paul would go to the Synagogues first, and preached to the Jewish synagogues. Then they would get mad at him and stone him and and throw him out and all that. And then he says, "Okay, I wash my hands of you. I'm going to the Gentiles now." And so that's kind of what he did. And he ended up going all the way over into Asia Minor, preaching to the Gentiles. Romans 1, 13, 14, he says this, Now I want you to know, brothers, that I often plan to come to you, but I was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he addresses the Roman church as predominantly Gentile, and he mentions, as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, that's non-Jewish people, Gentiles, both to the wise and the foolish. So Paul is obligated to the Gentiles. Again, this fits in with the theme of Acts, we start out, the Holy Spirit falls in Jerusalem and all the Jews get saved and all the Jews from the diaspora who were there at the Pentecostal feast, they go back home and they're witnessing the Jews and now we go to Samaria in Acts 8 with Philip and now we're in Acts 9 and we're going to the rest of the Gentiles as we see the gospel spreading out worldwide so that it will consume the earth just and fill up the earth just like that mustard tree that starts out with a little tiny seed. When did Paul witness the kings? Well, how about Agrippa in Acts 26? I think Herod Agrippa II. Agrippa said to Paul, It is permitted for you for you to speak speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense, and then he goes and tells the gospel to Agrippa. Agrippa was a king. When a king is not necessarily a big-shot king. It could be a kinglet, a ruler, an authority over a political jurisdiction. Uh, just in general, Acts 25, we know that Paul was sent to the uh, Roman government uh, when he appealed to Caesar, Acts 25, 11 through 12, if, if if then I am doing wrong or have done anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. This is Paul getting out of Jerusalem where the Jews are trying to kill him. And so he ends up going to Caesar. Now, I don't think he ever got a trial before Caesar himself personally. But the word got out in Caesar's household that Paul was a Christian. And for two years there, Paul was under house arrest preaching the gospel. And big shots in the Roman government got saved. All right, we go to Acts 9:16. Jesus has continued to speak to Ananias in Ananias' vision. I will show... I, Jesus, will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. Now, you might say, well, it's not fair that God chose Paul to be such a great minister of the gospel. And here I have some little tiny ministry. Nobody knows who I am. Hardly anybody's getting saved under my ministry. I'm just a nobody. It's just not fair. Paul, the reason he is going to have such a high place in heaven is because God chose him. God chose him. Yeah, well, God did choose him, all right. But look what else he did. He chose him so that he must suffer for my name. He must suffer for my name. Here's some examples of his suffering, mentioned by John Gill, quoting second Corinthians eleven twenty three. Weariness, pain, and watchings, that means staying up all night. Hunger, thirst, fastings, cold and nakedness, perils on various accounts, and from different quarters, stripes, scourges, imprisonment, shipwreck, stoning, and death. Well, okay. That fair? Such a radical change of mind by Paul for him to be willing to undergo all this horrible persecution when he himself was a persecutor beforehand. This radical change is an irrefragable proof of Christianity's truth, according to Adam Clark. And I think it is. I don't know how anybody can explain that. We go to verse 17. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. Now here, Brother Saul, it's important. Paul is a Christian by now. He's been fasting and praying for three days. He's had a vision from Jesus. He obeys the vision. Well, he's had two visions from Jesus. On the road to Damascus, Jesus says, go to Damascus. He went. He got there. He had another vision. He says, Ananias is going to show up at your house on the straight street. He's been praying. And, uh, and, and Jesus told Ananias he's been in in at the house in the straight street praying for three days. He's been praying. Who's he been praying to? And this shows that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Paul is a Christian here. Saul is a Christian. And not only that, do you think Ananias would go up to a guy that's been persecuting the church and call him Brother Saul? You can say, Well, he's a brother Jew. I, I repeat, do you really think that you're going to go up to somebody, whether he's Jewish or not, and say, whether he's a fellow Jew or not, and say, Brother Saul, you who've been throwing Christians in and casting your vote against them when they're on trial for their life? You're gonna call somebody like that brother? He was saved. And so Ananias says, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that Ananias gives him details. Oh, Paul might think, How did you know what happened to me on the road to Damascus? Because Ananias had been told by the Lord, and, and he sent me so that you can regain your sight and adds another detail here, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not, that wasn't mentioned in the previous account of Ananias' vision, but I'm sure that Jesus had told him that. And so with all that detail, Paul knew that this guy was legit. He was from Jesus, and so he's going to let him pray for him. Now, I said that Paul, Saul was a brother, and I said beyond a shadow of a doubt. Let me give you some people that back me up on this. Here's, and here's a reason for this, because we're going to get into some Pentecostal theology here, which, which is controversial, so I want to really make this point clear. Saul was a believer when Paul, when Ananias prayed for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's a quotation backing me up from John Gill. He calls him brother. He, Ananias, calls him Paul, brother, not because he was of the same nation, but because he was now of the same faith, because he was a regenerate person and belonged to the family of God and was of the same household of faith. And this he said not upon what he had received from Saul's own mouth, for he addressed him in this matter as soon as he came to him, but upon what the Lord had said concerning him. So John Gill knows the obvious. Paul was saved here before he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Quote, As he found that the head of the church had adopted Saul into the heavenly family, he, Ananias, made no scruple to give him the right hand of fellowship, and therefore said, Brother Saul, the right hand of fellowship. Ananias knew that Paul was saved. This is Adam Clark. All right, now, having gone to all that trouble to show that Paul was saved, Ananias then prays that he be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, but wait a minute. I thought that we all Christians got filled with the Holy Spirit as soon as we got saved. That's what I hear evangelicals say that all the time. These evangelicals who have their head in the sands about charismatic gifts because of all the extremism and ex- stupidities that unfortunately have blackened the name of the charismatic movement. They keep pointing, by that, pointing that out, and then they say, oh, but you, we're filled with the Holy Spirit of conversion. Really? Paul wasn't? Hey, good enough for me. If Paul the Apostle... Needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even though he'd already been regenerate already by the whole, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Maybe I should be filled with the Holy Spirit too after I get saved. Here's a quote from John Gill, who was not a Pentecostal, by the way. They didn't have him back there in the 1800s. Here's what John Gill says: "Quote with the extra filled with the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, such as speaking with diverse tongues, healing diseases, and the like." For as for the graces of the Spirit and even gospel light and knowledge and gifts for preaching it, he had received those already. Well, I don't know if Gil's right about that. He says that Paul's already had grace from the Spirit, he had gospel. Well, he did. He had grace from the Spirit and gospel light and knowledge when he had that vision, when he got saved. He says he had gifts for preaching it already. I don't know. I think that might have happened after he got filled with the Holy Spirit. But Gil points out that filling of the Holy Spirit was for quote, extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, such as speaking with diverse tongues, healings, and so forth, charismatic gifts, filling for charismatic gifts. And that's John Gill, not even a Pentecostal. Now, some argue that it would be degrading for an apostle to receive the Holy Spirit from a non-apostle, which is absurd. Paul wasn't an apostle at this time, for one thing, as Adam Clark points out. So Ananias is just praying for a fellow believer who's not an apostle at the time. But even if he was, so what? Where does it say it's required for an apostle to pray for others to receive the Holy Spirit? Ananias didn't need to be an apostle to pray for somebody else to receive the Holy Spirit. Anybody can pray for somebody else to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, Acts chapter 9. At once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. That means baptized in water, of course. The scales fell off. He could see. Now, being baptized right after you get saved, that shows that, in some cases, baptism of the Holy Spirit could come before the baptism in water. That happened at Cornelius' house in Acts 10. It also shows that what happens as soon as you get saved, just like the Ethiopian eunuch, as soon as he got saved, what, did he saw some water? Oh, let me get baptized. Just like in Cornelius' house, the disciples said, Oh, who can refuse these guys water? They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues just like us at the beginning, so let's baptize them. And then here we have Paul is soon as he is able, he, shortly after his conversion, he was baptized. There was not a long wait between conversion and water baptism like was practiced in the medieval Catholic Church, which was quite unfortunate. Now, the, the return of sight to Paul with the scales falling off his eyes. John Gill points out this is symbolic. Ignorance and sin were peeled away from Paul's eyes. He could spiritually see now. Yeah, I think that is pretty symbolic. Now, what does it mean the scales came off of his eyes? Uh, people debate over that. Was it something physical that fell off his eyes? Jameson Fawcett and Brown disagrees, says that substances like scales would not form naturally in so short a time, and so that Paul's eyes were just blinded supernaturally. So it's an expression. His scales were taken from his eyes. It means he could see again. His eyes were damaged by the bright light, Adam Clark says, and so then he could see again. He was healed supernaturally. There weren't physical scales that fell off his eyes. I don't know. I don't care. But we are now finished with the conversion and the filling of the Holy Spirit with the Apostle Saul, later to become the Apostle Paul. And in our next audio, we will take up his early ministry in Damascus, his early doings in Damascus, and also he took a trip to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.